Could COVID-19 actually boost organized labor in the South? Could it happen? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. There are a few clearly established patterns in history. In America, the North is the North and the South is the South. The big industrialized cities like Chicago and Detroit in the North have long histories of often successful labor activism. The South, well, that's been a different story. But as our guest today, Joseph Atkin, writes, there's an old trope that you can't organize the South. But, he says, in this current pandemic, workers in the old Confederacy are putting a lie to that widely assumed and long-held belief. Every now and then, there are shocks to the system. Capitalism appeared to be buzzing along quite nicely until the 1930s, for example, when the shock that was bad happened then. That shock created a lot of really big changes to our economic and political system. As our guest Joseph Atkins writes from Oxford, Mississippi, Bob Dylan did a song about Oxford Town once, he says, double-digit unemployment, widespread protests in the street, homeless camps spreading across the nation's cities, governmental ineptitude embodied in Republican intransigence and a compromised Democratic Party and a clueless president. Such were the early days of the Great Depression. I thought he was talking about now. It's also reality in America today, end of quote. And he says, like the 1930s, nowhere are the political and economic failures of modern-day American capitalism greater than in the U.S. South, where a monolith of Republican governors and legislatures are completely incapable of dealing with the COVID-19 crisis, end of quote. Change in the South? Really? Could even the old Confederacy be moving toward economic justice? If so, are there actual cases of optimism toward positive changes in the wake of the pandemic everywhere in America? Wow, a little bit of hope here. We like that from time to time. Joe Atkins, thanks so much for being with us and keeping democracy alive. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you, Bert. Joseph B. Atkins is a veteran writer and professor of journalism at the University of Mississippi. He's the author of Covering for the Bosses, Labor and the Southern Press, as well as the novel Casey's Last Chance. Well, again, thanks for being with us. The United States may be one country, but I don't think it's ever really been one nation. Colin Woodard wrote the definitive book a few years ago titled American Nations. In it, he describes 11 distinct nations of North America. I won't go into that now, but it's a good book. This show is being produced in New Hampshire, which is the North. In general, our knowledge of and interest in the ways of the South is quite low indeed. It's kind of unfamiliar territory to us. We've long been unionized up here in the North. I remember that great movie, Norman Ray, which follows Norman Ray Webster, an uneducated factory worker in North Carolina, 
who becomes involved in trade union activities at the textile factory where she works after her and her co-workers' health is compromised due to poor working conditions. That's the impression we are left with, that labor organizing in the South has been uniquely difficult. It's uh, traditionally agricultural, less industrialized, and a few history buffs have heard many other stories of management goons doing violence to anyone who dares to try to organize workers in the South into unions. The Southern economy is traditionally far more agriculturally oriented than that of the North. Is that still the case, Joe? Well, agriculture is still very important in the South, and uh, there's no denying that. But the economy has to, has changed over the years, and uh, there's a comparative amount of industry that was never here before, but that's here now. And, uh, I mean, uh, Detroit South, that's a huge foreign, foreign-owned auto, automakers. You've got uh, Boeing in South Carolina, and, uh, of course, uh, you, know, uh, you know, everything that's going on in, in the major urban areas like uh, Nashville and Atlanta. So it's more diverse than it used to be. But, but yes, cotton, tobacco, uh, uh, rice, and so forth, those are still important in the overall southern economy. And certainly we in the north have always depended on the stuff that comes out of the south. I mean, the, the cotton, where do you think it went in the, you know, in the uh, pre-Civil War days? It was the north that was buying the cotton made from the slave system. We worked together. Tell us, please, uh, about the remarkably colorful history of the south in the 1930s. I don't think that's as well known as it should be. You know, uh... I, uh, I wrote a book, you mentioned it, covering for the balls some years back, and then just doing research for that book, it was, uh, even though I, I knew this, that the history was a lot more colorful than it's portrayed in high school and college classes and what had, but uh, it's not even portrayed at all. But uh, uh, it was quite a discovery for me, just uh, all the things that were going on in this really kind of uh, benighted region in many ways. Uh, you know, you had, a, of course, in the Upper South in Appalachia, you had the, the, the mine workers who were uh-huh. sort of at an all-time low going through the 19-teens and into the 20s, but then by the 30s, uh, they really uh, doubled or tripled the membership and a lot more sort of worker consciousness there. You see, uh, you know, the United Auto Workers really came to the forefront in the 1930s with their uh, big strikes and sit-ins in uh, Flint, Michigan, and so forth. The first UAW strike was in Atlanta, Georgia. Really? And uh, and then it spread from there, uh, something I didn't know until I began working on that book. And then you've got some really uh, interesting stories in the, talking about the South in uh, places like uh, Arkansas, the Arkansas Delta. And what, what happened there was a unique sort of uh, joining together of black and white tenant and sharecroppers, tenant farmers and sharecroppers to protest the really horrible conditions, which are basically a kind of leftover of slavery in a way, uh, you know, indentured servitude, uh, in which they were totally dependent on the plantation arms, still called plantations. And um, and they came together and um, led by socialists who had been gas station owners, who saw in, uh, in socialism things that uh, served the people that, that capitalism was not serving, certainly during the Great Depression. They came together and actually made a difference. They had thousands of members. They, uh, they backed uh, um, plantation owners off and forced them to, to better the lives, at least temporarily. But then, you know, the, uh, the KKK and other mm-hmm. uh, sort of terrorist groups went after them, just like they went after black people. They stood up for their rights. So it was tough. 
you had mentioned to me earlier in correspondence about Hugh Long. Mm-hmm. Now, let me mention something about Hugh Long because he is a fascinating character. Oh, yeah. um, when he uh, when he came in uh, to Louisiana, he took over like he, he, it was like gangbusters. He rose mm-hmm. from uh, you know a, a lawyer to uh, you know in sort of central Louisiana and then studying in New Orleans, and then all of a sudden began his rise in politics, and it was phenomenal. And when he became governor and then senator later, mm-hmm. U.S. senator, he challenged a, an established, you know, hierarchy or uh, oligarchy that controlled that state. It was uh, oil, mainly oil, uh, oil barons and so forth, timber barons. He rocked, you know, he he rocked them to their foundation, mm-hmm. you know, and changed government and told the Louis, the people of Louisiana that government can actually work for you, not just the big CEOs or the big corporations, you know. He, Paid roads. He uh, yeah. he put you know funded school lunches, schools and so forth. And of course, the, the Huey Long we see portrayed as the, of the horrible demagogue who uh, tried to become a he became a dictator. Now I'm not denying that he became power hungry in many ways, and uh, he ruled with an iron fist because he had to he had to fight hard. But he was a a progressive populist in many of his yes. policies. And uh, that's sometimes forgotten in the, in the long story, you know, the, the huge long story. Yeah, he did a lot of good. You're no doubt about it. You, even for black people, which was unheard of at the time, I think, at least that's my impression, building schools and roads and, and including uh, lots of people. Uh, but uh, and, and also people tend to forget, I think, you know, we hear this populism and we think about the right-wing populism that exists today. Right. But there was something called prairie populism, which was extremely powerful in the agricultural areas of this country, uh, in the Midwest and in the South. And uh, I wonder, so do you think one of the reasons that that uh, left-leaning progressive populism uh, went under is because things like the Ku Klux Klan? Well, I think uh, I think it's still out there. There's a there's a fine publication out of Texas called The Progressive Populist, uh-huh. and sort of you know continues the tradition of the old the old left poly, uh, populism of uh, Huey Long and others. And um, they've not got they don't get media attention like yeah. uh, like the right wing populism of Donald Trump or something. But they're still out there. And one last thing on Long before we leave him and his brother was also kind of a fascinating guy, Earl Long. Oh yeah. They did not demagogue uh, the whole race issue like so many others mm. in the South did, like Talmadge in Georgia and uh, you know uh, Bilbo in Mississippi and so forth. They really kind of a uh, that's something that they they didn't do, and that's that's to their credit. And they were you know kind of unique in that way. And of course, his death is somewhat suspicious. I suppose he was. May, somebody tried to assassinate him. It may have been a doctor that messed up and let the infection take his life. I don't know. But boy, it would have been interesting had Huey Long survived. And it's interesting that, yeah. that a lot of that progressive populism in the South, as you say, does survive. We don't get that very much, that kind of news, very much here in, in the North, in the Union. And uh, a little late, but I'll apologize for... Uh, the uh, Sherman's March, that was pretty awful. It, a lot of bad things happened from the north <laughs> to the south. Oh, like, um, just It was too much. It was just not right. And of course, people are still angry about it. it, it anyway, I do love history, as people who listen to the show uh, are certainly aware. Now, the white south had been rock-solid Democrat until 1965, when one of their own, 
former Texas Senator Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act when he was president. Since, since then, my impression is the anti-union white supremacists have switched over. They used to be solid Democrat, and now they're solid Republicans. What is the political and governmental power of the two parties now in the old Confederacy? Well, it's uh, it's the Republican South. Now, the South is still is solid, uh, at least in, in the way that term used to be used uh, when it was uh, all Democrats. Uh, and it's still so solid now as all Republicans, almost every Every legislature uh, is Republican-dominated. Most governors are, although you have a Democratic governor in Louisiana. Uh, there's spring, and, and in North Carolina, sprinkled here and there, but mainly uh, Republicans pretty much rule. Yeah. And they rule under the same, uh, the same, just the same kind of rule that they had when they were Democrats down here. I mean, they, no government, no services, you know, low wages, no unions, and the whole kit and caboodle of old Southern politics. Yeah. And... Um, you know, you mentioned Johnson in 65. You know, Johnson himself predicted when he signed that voting rights act, there goes the South. Yeah. You know, and he was right. Yeah, he was. Um, yeah, and Nixon sort of got that oh, yeah. really going with his Southern strategy in the late 60s. And, you know, Strom Thurmond yeah. kind of led the way. He was the first major Southerner to sort of declare himself Republican. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the way it went. And, and you know, it, it's... Things change, and they stay the same as well. I think it's interesting. I've been getting all kinds of requests for uh, support in the traditional political way, money. Uh, one of them is from Mike Espy, who writes, I got one today, saying, don't count out the South. Don't count out the South. He is a black man in Mississippi who is running for U.S. Senate. Probably doesn't have a chance. I don't know. But interesting when he says, don't count out the South. What about Espy? Yeah. Is, is he... Does he have any any chance? Yeah, I know SB. He uh, he uh, he was elected to Congress uh, back in the eighties. I was a Washington reporter back in those days, uh, in the mid to late eighties, and uh, it was very historic. He represented the Mississippi Delta huh? for several years, and then uh, Bill Clinton appointed him Secretary of Agriculture. Oh, right. And um, and then he got into some controversies that were really kind of I thought unfair, but uh, and I don't remember all the details mm -hmm. of him. But uh, he left office, and then kind of sort of just became a practicing lawyer and then has sort of gotten back into politics in recent years. Um, he's got a tough battle ahead with um, uh, Cindy Hyde-Smith who uh, yeah. sort of brandishes her, her um, Confederate uh, yeah. you know, sort of credentials and what have you. Um, it, it's going to come down to, to turnout, if he can get the turnout out there. And that makes a huge difference. I mean, it's, um, Mississippi's black population is like 30-plus percent. And if you really had a good turnout, but then a lot of you yeah. know, a, a lot of those voters are are in the Delta, very impoverished, yes. uh, kind of a you know sort of a, a low expectations out of government, and it really mm -hmm. takes some effort to get them fired up to, to get to the polls sometimes. So he he's got a battle ahead, but you know he's he knows these are these are strange times with this pandemic, and uh, so we don't know. You know we'll we'll see. Yes, we will. These certainly are strange times. Some, uh, I don't know, I suppose some good is coming out of it. I'm not sure what, but maybe something. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest is Joseph B. Atkins, a veteran writer and professor of journalism at University of Mississippi, and he's written an article in uh, Portside and in History News Network, Labor in the Pandemic South. You, you write, well, I want to ask about... In recent decades, the Southern economy 
has surged. My impression is it's largely because so many businesses are attracted to an unorganized anti-union labor pool. If so, how and when and why is it changing? Yeah, that's a good question. But, uh, you know, we began to see after the civil rights movement sort of uh, a wound down in the late 60s with the assassination of Martin Luther King. As if, well, you know, King envisioned a kind of a, a strong sort of economic sort of movement to to sort of follow up on the civil rights movement, his poor people's campaign, and then his support for the uh, you know for the sanitation workers in Memphis uh, during that strike in 1968 in which he was assassinated. Um, but then his assassination, you know, the, the movement itself began to sort of fall to the wayside as people's attention turned to, to Vietnam. Here in the South, maybe it's because of just the the shame of the of the exposure of the region to you know, to the horrors that that led to the civil rights movement. There was a sort of a concentrated effort. I don't know how conscious it was, but it certainly evolved in which to to kind of sort of reidentify the South in a way. And you see the emergence of the Sun Belt South uh-huh. in the seventies and uh, and eighties, in which uh, a real focus on industry, bring industry down here. You know. And uh, kind of like what happened after the Civil War when Henry Grady said, come back south, you know, and your investments are, are here just waiting for you. So you see, you see there is a focus on industry then. And then um, you move on into uh, a decade or so later, then you begin to see Detroit South yeah. emerge. And, um, you know, with uh, Hyundai and uh, Nissan and Toyota, all these foreign owned auto- automakers coming to the south. They, these are unionized companies uh, uh-huh. everywhere else in the world, but not in the South. And they didn't want it in the South either. They they took on they took on the Southern tradition of anti-unionism, a, a tradition of the Southern political hierarchy, not necessarily the Southern people. Uh-huh. And uh, so they have fought unionization down here, and so far they've been largely successful, with some exceptions. Well, uh, what, so, yeah, it, it has changed. Yeah, and all those, all those uh, Detroit South car companies. I mean, that's always been a strong place for unions in the twenties and thirties. Manufacturing cars, GM, Ford, Chrysler, all that stuff. Yeah, America Motors. I remember them. And so, are they starting to organize now? Those those car manufacturing outfits. What uh, you had a you had like a a twelve year campaign down here in Mississippi with the Nissan plant, this gigantic plant that's over a mile long, Uh uh, just outside of Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, I covered that from the very beginning to the two nineteen two thousand seventeen when the uh, the vote basically failed to to win union support, Mm. and uh, they really put everything into it. Uh, You know. Down here, it, it takes more than one campaign. Mm-hmm. You had the uh, huge politics campaign in, in North Carolina in the 1990s, uh, which took three, at least three elections, I think, before they finally won. And uh, it may it may be the case with Nissan here, too. Mm. So they lost that one. They lost uh, other Nissan uh, campaigns in Tennessee. The uh, Volkswagen, Volkswagen in Chattanooga, at least one unit within that company there did vote union. And so they're, they're organized. Uh, and, um, and then you've got, you know, you, 
you've got some of the other sort of transplants down here who 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 are who have organized and what have you. But uh, by and large, the far known automakers have resisted it so far, and and so far successfully. Yeah. Well, things take time, as you say. It uh, often takes more than one try. Lord knows to make real change. Right. You write that much like the situation in the 1930s, nowhere are the political and economic failures of modern-day American capitalism greater in the U.S. South. That's quite a bit uh, said in there. Tell us about some of those failures, please, and, and perhaps how some of those uh, uh, problems are reminiscent of those in the 1930s. And I just want to repeat the phrase. Much like the situation in the 1930s, nowhere are the political and economic failures of modern-day American capitalism greater in the U.S. South. So do tell. Well, uh, I feel strongly about that. I think that um, what you've had down here is um, is, is a kind of a, a, a well a bastion of strong uh, anti-unionism that in which you've got this uh, phalanx, I guess, of uh, of not only business owners but also um, you know, also religious leaders. And uh, and media leaders and the press, uh, all solidly against unions, against uh, basically concert, very conservative in nature, and that's kept uh, it's kept unionization rates low here. As far as the failure of capitalism, what kind of capitalism do you have down here? You have a capitalism in which that enriches the rich, uh, that um, that mainly government serves a role as to to award um, tax breaks, uh, incentives, and what have you to uh, to companies. And really serve the give the people very little service. I mean, uh, there's minimal services. There's um, uh, uh, with the anti-unionism, you keep wages low, you keep uh, 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 benefits low, and what have you. That's why Huey Long surprised all these answers. They thought, hell, you mean government can actually serve us? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that was a new experience for them. You know, that actually they can do things for us. Oh. And I um, mean, here in Mississippi, it's just ridiculous. You've got. Um, Failing schools, you've got uh, ho- uh, rural hospitals uh, <sighs> shut down, and you've got a you've got a governor and a Republican uh, who's Republican and a Republican led legislature who who just don't feel the need to to, to do a whole lot about those, those kinds of things. And I, I do think with the pandemic, yeah, it exposes uh, these kinds of sort of uh, shortcomings of modern day capitalism, not only in the South but in the country as a whole. You know. Um, Peter Applebaum of the New York Times and others have written about the southernization of of the nation as a whole, mm-hmm. and how with Republican uh, uh, ever since Reagan and uh, you know Republican uh, you know either rule either in the House or the Senate since then, and then a couple other Republican presidents, including the current one, you know that they tr- they try their best to implement the, the same kind of policies that have long held. You know, dominance down here, mm. and um, I think with this pandemic, people. Have, I, you know, I hope good things can come out of bad things, yeah. and maybe I'm the last optimist in the room. But I, I tend to think it's exposed. Basically, people now see you, you need a responsive government that is the voice of the people, that helps them when private industry is not going to do it, and um, and so maybe, you know, the political situation is. It's strange because you've got a, like I said, an intransigent Republican Party, just like you did in the '30s, right. and um, and you've got a compromised Democratic Party yeah. that um, that has not as it's 
it's kind of, at least certainly under the Clintons, lost sight of its working class roots. Oh, yes. You know, I'd like to say Biden's going to change that, but that's another thing we'll just have to wait and see. I shrug my shoulders. That doesn't show up on radio, but yeah, who knows? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and I've I've had the impression for a while that, that one of the differences, the traditional differences, maybe it's changing, is that in the North, we have expected government to address social problems. My sense is, and tell me if I'm wrong, is that the South more has seen, no, that's not the government's role. That's the church's role. Is that, is that, yeah. I mean, and the churches can't do it. They, I mean, they, right. What? And the churches are compromised, you know, uh, you know, it's, again, there are moments in history which you, you'd like to think, gosh, what if this really developed, you know, uh, in the 1930s, we talked about that earlier, initial uh, responses to labor organizing in the South, uh, the CIO uh, sort of uh, made some sure. strong efforts to sort of gain some headway down here. And uh, you had uh, sort of legendary organizers like Mother Jones, oh, yeah. Lucy Randolph Smith uh, uh, out of Virginia and some others. And they would find uh, potential sort of empathy or sympathy from Pentecostal churches and fundamentalist churches who said, well, it's not the company owner whom we look to, it's, it's God, you know, and if the, the labor organizers could tap into that, maybe there's some potential here where they're not just aligned with uh, with the, the CEOs and so forth. thing is, money tells the story, mm-hmm. and companies often then and now bought the favor of the churches, and they would fund the churches, and you know, and then you, so, so you've got the Jerry Falwells and, and, and Son and other modern-day televangelists and so forth who are bought, who totally buy into the kind of a conservative, Republican, anti-government mm-hmm. uh, sort of narrative that we've been discussing. Uh, my goodness, that's quite, that's quite a, a, a story there about the, the companies funding the churches, and uh, it all works very neatly, doesn't it? There was a conference mm-hmm. recently that, that you wrote about uh, with a panel titled Perspectives on Union Organizing Today. And that was in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, of all places. Frankly, I, I never would have guessed there'd be a Perspectives on Union Organizing Today in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. I have one picture of the region. Has, has it really changed? Tell us about that uh, that conference. Well, it's not as, uh, as, as, at least among the people down here, as monolithic as it's portrayed sometimes. Uh, that that uh, that panel uh, was sponsored by the United Campus Workers, of which I'm a member, of, which is itself a member of the Communication Workers of America. All right. And uh, we had labor organizers and folks like me and what have you on that panel and just talking about organizing down here and, you know, where the South, the whole South is right to work, which makes it harder to organize uh. and so forth. But, but each of them... You know, tell stories of where uh, where you can make a difference, and um, I, t- I talked about sort of uh, non traditional organizing, mm-hmm. and uh, United Campus Workers is is kind of part of that. You know, it's we're a union, but we can't collective bargain. We don't have those rights. That allowed us, however, to establish ourselves in various campuses across the South, mm. Tennessee, on to Louisiana. Where you, if you had at least 50 people who were willing to sign up, you could open up a local and then build on that. 
you may not be able to collect the bargain, but you can, uh, but you could bring attention to serious issues. You could kind of force uh, uh, the leadership to, to do things they might otherwise not do. Mm-hmm. In Tennessee, the governor, the Republican governor, was literally going to privatize everything he could get his hands on, particularly mm. in the university system. And that fledgling, feisty little uh, local affair at the University of Tennessee, the United Campus Workers in Nashville and, then, uh, and elsewhere in the, in the state, fought it tooth and nail. They organized it in a door-to-door. They made kind of a, a, a public campaign of it. And then he didn't back off, and he dropped oh. his plans. So they, they can do things like that, even if they can't sit down across the table and, and negotiate wages and stuff. At this point, they can't. But um, these kinds of, you know, these kinds of sort of efforts, I think, uh, can make a difference. And there's a lot of examples of that in the South where you, you get around the, the restrictions that the political leadership has tried to put on, on labor organizing. And one thing I've said, I think I said in my piece that, uh, well, you mentioned about the the Southern worker hasn't been for, is, is not so necessarily anti-union as this a Southern political, economic, and religious leadership. Uh, that's that's who's anti-union, and they've had they've had more power down here, for, I guess, for a variety of reasons. But uh, but the worker himself or herself, um, if you if you if you talk to them in a, in a, in a way that, mm-hmm. that, that resonate, they'll listen to you, and. Uh, there's a there's a writer Jane McElevy, who just published has published a couple of books on new new ways to organize and in some ways she's sort of resurrecting the old CIO model mm. in which um, you don't come in like an outsider you come in and, and if you if you even if you are coming in from the outside you try to sort of uh, tap into uh, to the local culture in a way where you. You know, the, the labor organizer becomes a part of it in a way where it's not some sort of foreign presence among us. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it probably wouldn't work to, to wave the Communist Manifesto in the faces of Southern factory workers. <laughs> <laughs> that will not work. You know, it amazes <laughs> me. It might work if you, if you hold up the Bible and you you know what Jesus says here? Ah. <laughs> that might work a lot better. <laughs> oh my goodness! Yeah, you know it, it's still. I'm I'm surprised by some some people on the left who, you know, say, "Well, we can't vote for Joe Biden because he's just not perfect," you know. But uh, I'm reminded of the quote from uh, John Lennon: "If you go carrying pictures of Chairman Mao, you ain't gonna make it with anyone anyhow." And I'm sure that's the case <laughs> in the South yeah. too. You know, people, you gotta listen to people. I as a former candidate myself and. Kate, well, I, I often won. When you listen to people, they think you're really smart. You know, that's what it is. Yeah. And coming in from the outside, right. telling people what is best for them, not a good approach. I, I Hopefully, you know, some union organizers have learned that. I imagine that they have. Every now and then, we do learn from history. For those who may have just yeah. tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about labor in the pandemic south our guest today is joseph atkins writer and professor of journalism at the university of mississippi and we're speaking to him from oxford mississippi uh and uh meatpacking we're talking about the pandemic to labor in the pandemic south meatpacking big industry in the south it's part of the agricultural heritage i believe it's also been the source of much of the coronavirus spread especially in communities of color that have a large presence in those meatpacking plants. Tell us, please, about the Southern Workers' Assembly in the wake 
of COVID-19. Yes, this is a, this is one of several sort of a, a groups that um, that I mentioned in my piece, and again, it, it, it's sort of a, it, it, it's linked with this whole idea of non-traditional organizing. The Southern Workers Assembly has been around quite a while. It's based uh, uh, based in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina. At least that's a mailing address, but it's it's active all over the South, particularly sort of in the eastern part of the region, Carolinas, Georgia, and so forth. And uh, it's kept. Uh, so at the forefront, the issues facing uh, these 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 meatpacking uh, workers who uh, I mean they have a uh, they have a COVID infection rate is five times higher than those who uh, well the people in those communities have a COVID nineteen mm. infection rate is five times higher than those who don't have a meatpacking plant in their midst mm. and um, and so they have uh, they've really uh, you know they are a, a group that includes unions includes activist groups. It includes a variety of different kinds of social justice groups that work together to bring attention to issues and to, you know, this kind of sort of what they call corporate campaigns where you can, you can embarrass stockholders, you can, uh, mm-hmm. you can so almost force the media to pay attention to you, and in that way you can you can you can you can make a difference, and um, and so they're doing that, and they're they're leading that charge. Um, you know, you've got a. You got some stories like in the Smithfield uh, uh, plant in, in Smithfield, North Carolina, uh, mm-hmm. a few years ago. A uh, huge, huge plant, uh, sort of in, in the pork industry, and what have you, and uh, where uh, they had a you know a, a restaurant union effort that actually won, and it won against uh, enormous odds, and because you had uh, minority workers there, you had African American workers, and you had Latino workers. Mm-hmm. And uh, the anti-union forces tried their best to keep those keep those folks divided, you know, sure. where they're, they're either jealous of each other or you know one is suspicious of the other, you know, taking the jobs and what have you. And uh, uh, union and other organizing groups came in there to try to overcome that and get get those those people to work together, and ultimately they won that union. Mm. And you know that's that's a, that's a common tactic of the anti-union forces is divide and conquer. Yes. And uh, and so that's the piece to respond to that. You've got to figure out a way to um, to address that and, and keep people you know, in solidarity and and not at each other. You know. Well, racism is so convenient for keeping people apart. You know, it's just, you... yes, of course. <laughs> you know, the big powerful interests have have fed on that for a long time. Keep keep them divided amongst themselves so that they don't have real power. I think people perhaps are starting to see through that and see what their connections are, uh, you know, yeah. as, as working class people. And perhaps, I don't know, maybe it's, it's happening more in the South than any place else. I don't know, but it's, it's, it's interesting to look at and it's encouraging to hear about these uh, forward movements. Now, we did, of course, talk about, you know, in the 1930s, big problems there. But Franklin Roosevelt came out of that. He was a solid Democrat. He needed Southern senators, you know, the racist, segregationist senators, to support his New Deal legislation. It was a very different Democratic Party back then. It's, you know, that that's what the Republican Party is now for a large extent. I wonder if you could tell us about the ways the elected officials of the South dealt with FDR's labor laws and how President Roosevelt managed to work with them. Maybe there's lessons there. Right. Um, well, the Southern... Um uh, members of Congress back in those days, uh, you had some, uh, 
you had some, you know, it's, it's kind of an interesting split. You had some, uh, uh, some legitimate progressive populists like Claude Pepper in the house. He was called Red Pepper, you know, <laughs> representing uh, his district in Florida. And you had others who actually uh, embraced elements of, uh, of Roosevelt's New Deal. I mean, uh, and uh, in which, um, you know, creating the Tennessee Valley Authority, yep, you know, yep. electricity to rural areas and that kind of thing. They uh-huh. love those things. Yeah. But they, they they didn't want you to challenge the racial code in the South, however. And, and also the uh, the labor code, because uh, um, those, those same uh, members of Congress would uh, might support the TVA or something like that, but they're going to fight tooth and nail to keep uh, – to keep the labor laws like the Wagner Act of 1935, the National Labor Relations Act, and so forth, excuse me, from representing farm workers. Back then, agriculture was even more important. Right. It's still important, but it was way more important back in those days. And so even today, labor laws do not extend to, to, uh, to farm workers. And see, that was a big success for the, you know, for the, for the Southern Co- Democratic Coalition right. back then. Roosevelt had to work with them. He wanted to keep his you know, this coalition together that to keep defeating the Republicans. And so he had to kind of make a deal with the devil. Mm-hmm. And that's why in all the progressive measures you see at a Roosevelt FDR, you don't see civil rights legislation. Yeah. And that was a compromise he had to make, you know. That's what he did. And uh, there was, I believe there was something about uh, an anti-lynching law that, that he dropped. Right. So that he could get the support of the southern southerner, southern yeah southern right. senators. It's yeah, you got to do what you got to do. I mean, people have whacked on Joe Biden for dealing with some of the southern segregationist senators, but I, as a former state senator myself, I'll tell you on some issues, you know, your 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 enemy on one issue is your best friend on another issue. That's, right, that's how you get things your done. Politics makes strange bedfellows. Boy, the old cliche, but it's true. It is true, <laughs> and. And to be honest, I never would have guessed there'd be anything called Vansoremos in Arkansas. <laughs> Tell us about them, please. What COVID spreading? You know, go ahead. What, what what COVID spreading industry are they active in? And and, and tell us about. Well, them. this is a, this is poultry, uh, and this is poultry is extremely strong in Northwest uh, Arkansas. Uh huh. Yeah. And uh, and so. They uh, particularly uh, one of the big plants is the Tyson Corporation, one of the major sort of poultry. Sure. Uh, uh, companies in, uh, in, in the world, really. And uh, they're based in Spring, Springdale, Arkansas. And there's just a huge rate of, uh, of COVID-19 among those workers, most of whom are, are Latino. Uh, a large number of mo- people from the Marshall Islands uh, are, are there, too. They had to leave those islands because of, I think, um, bomb testing and what have you kind of polluted the atmosphere or whatever. So you have, mm. you have uh, migrant workers and uh, who you know? Who um, many of them may be undocumented. I don't know, sure. but uh, makes them fearful then of uh, reporting uh, abuses and what have you. Mm. So they're they're vulnerable. And uh, Vincent Ramos, uh, which means we conquer, or we win, mm-hmm. is an organization, relatively new organization that's really taken up that uh, you know that uh, the, that battle flag and uh, bringing attention to uh, to what's going on with those workers because they're not getting support. Here again, the governor of Arkansas um, conducted a study after initial reports that there was a uh, there were health problems and what have you at these plants. Mm-hmm. And of course, the uh, the government of Arkansas gave it its 
seal of approval. Mm-hmm. Oh, everything's fine down there. <laughs> and then these really, uh, you know, then these rates, uh, and then you know, not long after that, 250 workers at that one plant in, in Springdale test positive. Oh, wow. And so it's Vince Ramos that's bringing attention to this issue and, and not letting it sort of die down. It, it, like I said, the group's new. There was a similar group back in the late 60s uh, in, in the West, uh, West Coast in California, what have you, that was pretty radical, you know, 60s, 60s radical style, and um, sort of uh, ended in controversy. That's a different group. Uh, this this group here in Arkansas may, may take some inspiration from them, I'm not sure, but, uh, but it's one of several, you know, uh, across the region that, um, that are particularly sort of out there supporting uh, uh, supporting uh, immigrant workers, migrant workers, and uh, like, kind of like the Farm Labor Organizing Committee, FLOC, yeah. and also the Coalition of Immokalee Workers. What, what's the, uh, tell us about those, the Immokalee Workers. I had not heard of that group. That's, uh, tell us about that. Yeah, these are, these are, man, these are, you know, these are success stories, I think, in many ways. Uh, organizing among among the most vulnerable workers, who many of whom are undocumented, they have really no legal rights that that, that they're aware of or just recognized uh, by southern governments and so forth. And um, and yet these organizations have come in to represent them, to argue for their for their uh, you know for their cause, and uh, and have had some uh, some really kind of remarkable successes. Um, mm. The Farm Labor Organizing Committee. I really started in Ohio uh, under the leadership of Baltimore Velasquez, uh, who's kind of a who's a real hero uh, in in sort of farm labor organizing, uh, and um, he uh, won the MacArthur Award for his for his efforts. And um, so he uh, they they I, I guess they're still active in Ohio, but they really shifted a lot of their their efforts toward the Carolinas, and. Um, and one of the big victories was the Mount Olive Pickle Company, a uh, pretty major pickle company back in, uh, in the early 2000s. Uh, they won, they forced uh, other companies like Rassic, another pickle mm. company, Heinz, you know, well, there's to the, to the bargaining table to improve conditions and wages for workers. The, uh, the Immokalee worker, Immokalee workers, that's uh, I-M-M-O-K-A-L-E-E. Mm-hmm. They're kind of based in Immokalee, Florida, Rural uh, South Florida area where they, you know, they pick oranges and, and other fruit and what have you. Uh, uh, and um, these again are, you know, by and large Latino workers. And the coalition has come together to represent them. And they've had, they have forced uh, Burger King, McDonald's, and other major companies to, uh, to uh, sort of raise a penny, uh, uh, maybe on what they pay for, uh, for fruit and so forth. Uh, and uh, and ultimately, then those those new revenues then go to improve wages and conditions for those workers. And uh, so here you've got here once again sort of a little different from traditional kind of organizing mm. because on the surface you don't think they have bargaining rights, but right. they have actually forced the issue and and actually bargained their way for help for their work for their members. Well, that is that is good news and. Uh... Talk about FDR, one of the things he, I don't remember the exact quote, but he was talking to A. Philip Randolph of the uh, Pullman Porters Union about, you know, segregation and being, you know, black people being treated uh, fairly and equally. The president said, I agree with you. I want to support you. Now go out there and make me do it. 
And that's how it works. Uh-huh. <laughs> you got to be clever. And, and as you're saying here, they're getting around it. It's really uh, interesting how it's actually uh, changing. And uh, you do. You've got to be smart. And yeah. so, what's going <laughs> to figure out what's going to work? You know, and uh, and you know, if uh, if the old traditional ways didn't work, let's try. You know, because we have to deal, like I said, in a, in a right to work situation. Yes. Where uh, that makes it more difficult, oh, but at yeah. the same time, it can be done. It just has to be. You have to be creative. <laughs> yeah, you do. Well, you know, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. All those cliches, but it's true. If you, for those of you have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The the, uh, the show is keeping democracy alive. We need everybody participating. And our guest today is uh, Joe Atkins, who's written an article in Portside and History News Network: Labor in the Pandemic South. And what what are, you know, it's. <laughs> It's especially tough for people of darker complexion when it comes to dealing with uh, uh, the pandemic, with COVID-19. It hit, it's hitting them hard. How is this presenting an opportunity for organizing for uh, people who are you know, at higher risk that are working in these factories? How, how are they dealing with the pandemic in the South? Is it actually proving to be some sort of a, uh, a stimulus to getting change happen? I think uh, it's certainly, I think, having an effect on the consciousness of those workers. And, uh, you know, they face, uh, they face great odds. They, they're, they're low-wage workers, particularly in, uh, in, in, you know, like in poultry and, uh, and, and meatpacking, buying large and so forth. And so that makes them vulnerable. Like, you know, the, the boss man's always going to say, well, if you don't want to do the job, I'll find somebody else. Right, who can. right. We will do the job. Yeah. And there's some there's some truth to that, but uh, those are also workers who uh, traditionally, culturally, may be more aligned to join in the union. If they can, you know, fear is your biggest is your oh, biggest yes. battle. It's overcoming fear. Yeah. And uh, st- studies have shown African American workers more uh, more likely to be willing to uh, to to join a union, perhaps than. Uh, than, than, than the other workers, white workers or what have you, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, Latin, and, and you know, Latin American, what have you, there's been more of a tradition that, uh, that can be sort of uh, played into. So, um, so I think, you know, I, I think there's potential there. You've got these, uh, these groups that I've discussed, Vincent Ramos and these others, yeah. uh, who were who talking to those folks and it takes, you know, you know, just power in numbers. Yes. And if you're by yourself, you've got no power. Right. And uh, so that that comes down to organizing, whether traditional or non-traditional. And you, you, if you can come to get folks like that to speak with United Voice, then you're going to get somebody to listen to you. Uh-huh. And, uh, and that's how it works. Well, yeah, you make enough noise, they have to pay attention. It's not <laughs> complicated. Now, North Carolina's economy has been booming for quite some time. And again, they're an aggressively anti-union state. The nurses in Western North Carolina, they're facing unique challenges in this age of the pandemic. Tell us about the nurses' unique and noteworthy struggle in Western North Carolina with regard to the uh, to the pandemic. Yeah, this is uh, particularly interesting to me. I live in Mississippi, but I'm a, I'm a native of North Carolina. I grew up there, and uh, I've got lots of relatives in the western part of the state. And uh, so it was very interesting to me to, to learn about this campaign that's going on in Asheville, North Carolina, a beautiful, beautiful city. Uh, and it's, uh, they had a, they've had long had a hospital there, the Mission Hospital, that um, 
was a nonprofit for many, many years and a, a kind of a, a proud and, and a hospital that uh, had a proud, proud reputation and, and people loved it. Well, it gets bought by one of the largest hospital corporations in America, the HCA Healthcare, uh, yes. uh, and which bought it and a bunch of other hospitals. Oh, yeah. And it um, wasn't too long before, before some of those proud traditions began to fall to the wayside. Services began to deteriorate as, mm. as focus was increased on profit. Mm. And you had nurses begin to sort of to, to take, take issue with that. And it started with, uh, with four nurses who led an effort that, that, that grew and grew. And now you've got hundreds of nurses uh, who are standing together uh, in an effort to, uh, to uh, be represented by a union. Uh, I think it's the National Nurses of America or something. But anyway, and so they got an election coming up, and they're looking pretty strong. They're facing enormous odds. This is a classic story here. I mean, the uh, HCA has hired uh, Union Busters, a big law firm, to lead a campaign against the union, paid them $400 an hour oh. to do that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty typical. Uh, most companies will do that. There are these law firms spread across the region. I'm sure you've got them in the North, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Anytime yeah. there's a big union campaign, they hire us. Those uh, those guys to come out and start waging advertising campaigns mm-hmm. uh, talk about how you, those dues are going to drive you bugs, those union dues, and how you know the union doesn't represent you. Why bring in an outside voice and all this kind oh, of yeah. stuff? You know, so they they're facing that, but uh, they're looking pretty strong. Uh, and uh, there's there's some optimism on the uh, on the ground level there that they can they're gonna they're gonna win this thing. You know. Um, I'm, I'm on the other end of the South, so I, I, I can't make an educated guess, but I know they're looking pretty good, so I'm keeping my fingers crossed. Oh, let us do that. And, you know, it's it's widely, there's a widely held perception, anyway, that white Southern workers are, you know, uniquely resistant to union organizing. I'm getting the sense that they're not as much as, as pictured. They're seen as solid pro-Trump voters, despite... The traditional Republican policies, which hurt the economic interests of the working people. I mean, that, that happens all the time, and for hundreds of years it's been going on. People most hurt vote for the, the oligarchs. But let me ask you, do yeah. social issues still trump pocketbook issues in the South, or might we, we be starting to see a change? You know, social and cultural issues, you know, like abortion, things like that. It's really important to, to some people, and I'm guessing yeah. the social issues might is there starting to to be a shift about which is more important? Yeah, I don't, I don't want to paint a, a too rosy a picture here. I mean, it is, it is still a struggle. Yeah. And um, there's a kind of an instinctive uh, reaction among a lot of white Southerners uh, that made them vote Trump. And, you know, was race an issue? And it's sure an issue with, with, voter, with many voters, but not all. I think... You saw this in the uh, in the Midwest as well. There was a kind of a disgust with the political system as a whole, and um, you know there was a feeling that the, the Democratic Party, at least, was led by Hillary Clinton, yeah. was not certainly not speaking to working class issues, and a kind of a almost a snobbery about that. And um, then you hear you get Trump. Okay, he's Republican, but he's out there talking about I'm going to bring these jobs back. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do this. And he hadn't done any of that, but he talked it at least. And so he did something at least the Democrats were not doing. 
And I think a lot of people went for him for that reason. There's still a kind of a feeling uh, that Trump is a rebel against the system. We don't like the system. But I, I think COVID has exposed, at least to, to, to many, I think, that uh, he didn't deliver on this. And he's not delivering now. And we're not being protected. We're actually under threat. And we have a we have a political leadership that's not um, that's, that's not handling this thing uh, like it should. Is it, is it enough to uh, to trump uh, you know to like you said uh, you know uh, are these kind of issues enough to trump pocketbook issues and what have you? You know um, he Trump still has he's got the evangelical right still yes. still pushing for him. They're preaching pro-Trump probably in the churches and what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, but people then are going home. Uh, they see where they can't, Congress can't even get together to uh, to help them get through this crisis with another sort of a, a, another sort of a deal or what have you that can that can get them, you know, a $600 unemployment check or something. And I think that. Uh, uh, I, I think there's a, a growing awareness of that. Is that enough to make a difference in November? Oof, that's a big one. Yeah, I don't but, know. But here in the South, you know, a lot of there are a lot of Trumpsters down here. Yeah, but yeah. I think they also are increasingly aware that Trump's not serving them. He's he's talking the game. He's talking the talk, but he's not walking the walk. Yeah. Wouldn't that be nice? Who knows? Who knows? I'm always surprised. My <laughs> my record on predictions is not good. <laughs> I don't do well. How how rare is good news about labor in the South? Why is it never discussed in history courses? Is it just too inconvenient? Uh, yeah, well, it's it's not. And uh, I teach media history at, uh, at the University of Mississippi, uh-huh. and I, I I should teach it. We talk about a market, you know, in Chicago and things like that, and uh, uh, and so I make sure that it's part of our history. At least when I teach it, but by and large, it's not. And, and it's it's such a shame. Uh, there's so many uh, heroic moments in this long struggle of uh, within the most capitalistic country in the world to to sort of preserve or to, to, and, and fight for working class rights. And uh, and those heroes are they're just not taught. You know, the, the the history books are not written to talk about those efforts. And it's a shame. I mean, you mentioned A. Philip Randolph. Mm-hmm. I mentioned earlier Mother Jones. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are just these are these are important historical figures that uh, we know very little about. And we should know more. And there are people out there now. Um, there's a there's an organizer, an uh, African American woman, uh, and sort of works in Tennessee, Mississippi. Rose Turner. She, to me, she is just a, a real hero, a fiery worker who gets out there and just does the job. She um, she led the successful uh, catfish workers uh, organizing mm. effort back in the early 1990s, which catfish workers, my gosh, mm. you know, they're again the lowest paid, sure. 99% African American, and they won the union. And um, mm. and uh, just a few years ago, um, the catfish uh, companies uh, were trying to sort of turn back some of those gains that they had made. And uh, the catfish workers uh, threatened to strike, uh, just an industry-wide strike, and the companies backed off. You know, and so are you going to are we going to read about that in the newspaper? Much less see it in a history book? No. Mm. <laughs> you got to go to alternative media. You got to go to 
you got to go to Bert Cohen and places like that to hear about these things. Oh, that's true. Well, hopefully we're making <laughs> a difference. Everybody is. You know, it's starting to change, it seems like. And it seems like, you know, the changes uh, and, and COVID-19 is sort of pushing it along because people are starting to see, hey, this isn't working out very fairly. Some of us are at greater risk than others. Well, if people are interested right. in reading more of your stuff, is there a, a way they can do that, perhaps on the uh, Internet thingy? Yeah, I have a blog. It's Labor South. Uh-huh. You could probably just say Labor South, Joseph B. Atkins, and uh, and it will come up. It's HTTP, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. slash, slash, www, that whole thing. Mm-hmm. And then I publish a good bit in, uh, on Portside, uh-huh. um, Progressive Populist out of Texas. Uh-huh. And then there's another uh, website out of Atlanta, uh, Like to Do, which is a web magazine. Uh, and uh, they push, push a lot of progressive left issues and what have you. And so those are the three primary places. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. And it's we live for optimism. It's true. It's a scary time, but it's also a hopeful time. The best of times, worst of times, yeah. I don't know. Thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Very and hopeful. Thank you, Bert. My pleasure. Right. Take care now. Once was a union maid who never was afraid But the goons and the geeks and the company freaks And the deputy sheriffs who made the raid And when the news was called, she went to the union hall And when the legion boys came round, she always stood her ground Oh, you can't scare me, I'm sticking to the union I'm sticking to the union I'm sticking to the was wise to the tricks of company spies she couldn't be fooled by the company's school she'd always organize the guys she'd always get her way when she strives for better pay she'd show her card to the national guard and this is what she'd say oh you can't scare me i'm sticking with the union i'm sticking with the union i'm sticking with the union be free just take a tip from me join your hand with a union man into the 21st century as angela davis found we're all together bound let race and class and gender join to stand on common ground oh you can't scare me i'm sticking with the union i'm sticking with the union i'm sticking with the I'm sticking with the union. I'm sticking with the union. I'm sticking with the union. Today I die. I'm sticking with the union.